How loss and grief turned into the year of the opposite. Why did you abandon me? This heart-wrenching message was written by a child struggling with grief after the death of a loved one. It was displayed on the wall of Ellie's place alongside other devastating notes. I am still lovable even though death has touched me. I hate you for dying. Mom, out of everybody, you choose me to die on. Love is watching somebody die. When I saw these notes, I knew that I had to join the board of Ellie's Place. Ellie's Place is a nonprofit organization committed to ensuring that no child grieves alone. This outstanding organization serves an incredibly worthy cause, and it operates with exceptional efficiency, directing the majority of its donations towards program implementation. This week, we hosted the Healing Hearts Breakfast, an event in which board members invite seven friends to learn more about Ellie's Place with the hope of encouraging them to support our mission. More than 350 people attended this breakfast. During the event, we listened to moving stories from three families who had benefited from the services provided by Ellie's Place. It was an emotional roller coaster. A lot of tears were had. It is alarming to learn that roughly 10% of children experience the loss of a parent before they are 16 years old. Ellie's Place offers a safe, nurturing environment for those children to share their experiences with skilled counselors and peers who've experienced similar losses. The breakfast was an exceptionally poignant experience. Hearing the tragic and heart-wrenching stories of families who have lost loved ones deeply resonated with me. It's hard to comprehend the magnitude of loss and the accompanying grief that a child would face during such challenging times. When hearing the stories from these amazing kids, I felt guilty. Somehow, I had been fortunate enough to go 41 years without experiencing the unexpected loss of a loved one. Although I have lost dear family members, such as my grandpa Mike Brady, these losses were not sudden or unforeseen. Reflecting on the stories shared during the Healing Hearts Breakfast, I realized how incredibly fortunate I had been to have avoided such loss particularly given the sobering statistics. I've been thinking a lot about grief this week because of that breakfast. One of the things therapists recommend is to write down your feelings and thoughts as a way to get them out of your head. This is one of the reasons I started this newsletter, to write and share as a form of therapy for myself in the small hope that maybe it would help just one person out there. I've been avoiding this topic because it's hard but now it seems like the time to address it, given this week's breakfast. As I've said before, grief is what propelled me into the year of the opposite. In February of 2022, I lost a dear friend, Joe. A few months later, two more friends died. I was incapable of handling the grief, and it sunk me into depression. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I didn't really understand depression before experiencing it for myself. And when it hit me, it hit hard. On February 21, 2022, I received a text message from a good friend, Mike, saying, Really, really crappy day, boys. Just talked to Joe's sister. He's in really bad shape. Had a heart attack yesterday in the ICU on a ventilator in Pontiac right now. I'm trying to figure out my schedule this week. They're only allowing one visitor from 5 to 8 p.m., he was supposed to go back into rehab on Thursday. 
Within a few hours, I had made the drive over to Metro Detroit to be by Joe's hospital bed. I had never seen anyone hooked up to so many medical devices. Machines were doing almost everything for his body. He was bloated and looked like he had significantly aged since I saw him only a short five months ago. I don't think anyone will benefit from hearing the excruciating detail of Joe's passing. As you would expect, it was devastating and profoundly sad. But I do want to mention the aspects that I believe are crucial to understanding my specific grief as it relates to Joe's situation in hopes of potentially helping others. The Visiting Hours When Joe was in the hospital, it was nearly two years after the start of COVID pandemic. Vaccines were widely available and the novelty of the virus had largely worn off. Novelty meaning most people had either been vaccinated or had previously contracted the illness by this time. Yet for some inexplicable reason, the hospital still enforced a policy that allowed only one visitor to see Joe between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Not one visitor at a time, but one visitor per day. His family members and friends had to choose who had the right to see him on any given day. Fortunately, I managed to slip past security and spend about 10 minutes with him. If it weren't for my luck that one time, I wouldn't have been able to see him at all. The hospital's rationale was that there were, they were trying to protect patients and staff from COVID, and I don't blame them. I am confident that they were doing what they believed was in everyone's best interest. However, the policy had a profoundly damaging effect on me, and I believe on his family. For months, I couldn't shake the thought of Joe dying alone in his hospital bed, with no one there to talk to him, advocate for him, or comfort him holding his hand or covering him with a blanket. This thought haunted me throughout my grieving process. I want to clarify that I do not fault the hospital, and I do not believe that there was any malice or ill intent. However, I want to be honest about the personal impact of this policy, because I believe these stories should inform future decisions. With the benefit of hindsight, I think society should reflect on our choices and carefully evaluate whether the benefits genuinely outweighed the harms. Keeping friends and family away from dying loved ones should be done with extreme caution and care. I know firsthand the damage inflicted can linger for a long time. The Guilt Two other aspects of Joe passing haunted me. Firstly, I grappled with immense guilt. My friends and I had been aware of Joe's struggle with alcohol for years, and we had often considered organizing an intervention, or at the very least having a serious conversation with him about our concerns and encouraging him to seek help. I felt guilty for never acting on that plan, and I couldn't help but wonder, could I have done more? To make matters worse, the last time I saw Joe was at an MSU Spartan tailgate party, where we were all heavily consuming alcohol. Joe's unexpected arrival, drinking a hard seltzer, caught me off guard, as he had been sober the last time we spoke. I didn't confront him about his drinking believing it would be hypocritical to judge my friend while I was also indulging in excessive alcohol consumption. These three factors, the hospital visiting hours, the guilt of not intervening, and not addressing Joe's drinking the last time I saw him, were the primary thoughts that tormented me about his loss.
It wasn't until after his funeral that I knew something needed to change. Joe's funeral took place in a beautiful Catholic church in the metro Detroit area with a large gathering of friends and family. Afterwards, our group of friends went to a local restaurant and bar where many of us had alcoholic drinks. My friend Ryan joined us and he asked if he could drive my new car on the hour-long trip home. This was music to my ears because it meant that I didn't have to worry about driving. I now had a designated driver. Consequently, I had three beers. I wasn't intoxicated, but I wouldn't have indulged if I were driving home. Reflecting on my actions later that night, I thought, my close friend died from excessive drinking and I drank at his funeral. I felt foolish, like a fraud. I had been beating myself up over not organizing an intervention for Joe, yet I couldn't even honor him by abstaining from alcohol at his funeral. I felt like a hypocrite. My relationship with alcohol has always been complicated. When I was 12, my parents jokingly said, if you don't drink until you're 21, we'll give you $1,000. Not a single person thought they were serious, except for me. I remembered that comment and frequently brought it up. I embraced the challenge and later, when my cousin Ryan, whom I idolized, decided not to drink, I followed suit. And as a punk rock fan who enjoyed the band Minor Threat and the straight edge movement that they created, I resolved not to drink until I was 21. Not only did I abstain from drinking, but I took it a step further and made it a part of my identity. I occasionally wore big black X's on my hands. I named my band X-Rated and belonged to a close-knit group of friends who had mostly chosen not to drink. It wasn't just that I didn't drink. I was vocal about it. In hindsight, I'm ashamed of some of my behavior. I was too judgmental about something I didn't understand and that I had never tried. From the age of 12 to 17, I was vocally opposed to alcohol consumption. But that started to change. During my senior year of high school, while playing hockey, I suffered a terrible accident when another player's skate inflicted a six-inch-long wound on my throat. I've included a video in the post that you can watch and see the incident. I was rushed to emergency surgery, and during the procedure, the doctor told me I had been a mere quarter-inch away from death. At just 17 years old, I had narrowly escaped death, and it led me to contemplate all the aspects of life I had yet to experience. One recurring thought was about alcohol and drugs. By this time, many of my friends had tried them without any severe consequences, and I wondered if I was too judgmental about something I had never experienced for myself. However, abstaining from alcohol had become my identity. It wasn't easy to just change after committing to this policy so religiously and after I had proselytized it so strongly. Moreover, I had the prospect of winning $1,000 if I waited until I turned 21, so I waited. At 12.01 a.m. on my 21st birthday, I drank a bottle of Cristal Champagne, a choice inspired by my favorite artist. It wasn't the best first choice. I didn't get drunk or even buzz that first night, but I knew I wanted to try again. This set me on a new path. After getting drunk for the first time, I discovered that alcohol helped me overcome my natural shyness, making it easier to socialize, 
and connect with a new group of friends who enjoyed partying in the bar nightclub scene. The realization that I enjoyed drinking alcohol and that I could do it safely prompted me to reevaluate my other beliefs. It's hard for me to describe just how earth-shattering this realization was for me. It was a bit like realizing that Santa didn't exist. Or maybe more similar, like believing in a religion for your entire life, but then having a crisis of faith that makes you question everything that you had previously believed. It felt like everything I believed was wrong. If my perception of alcohol had been so wrong, what other misconceptions might I hold? This inquisitiveness led me down a potentially perilous path. Over the ensuing years, I experimented with a variety of drugs. In almost all cases, I just tried them once or twice to see how I reacted to them and to experience each of them for myself firsthand. I share this not out of pride, but with a sense of self-admonishment. My actions were risky and dangerous. It could have ended badly. I feel like I was spiraling a bit. For the previous 21 years, I had a clear picture of right and wrong, albeit lacking any first-hand experience. Now I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. The picture was much less clear. This experience ignited a profound curiosity to reassess other firmly held beliefs that lacked a basis in my own first-hand experience. The situation could have taken a disastrous turn, but fortunately it did not. Luckily, I had pleasurable experiences trying all of the various drugs, but I didn't continue using them except for one. Marijuana became a significant part of my life from age 21 to my mid-30s. My identity shifted 180 degrees almost overnight. I went from, I don't drink or do drugs, to, I'm a pothead. But surprisingly, contrary to the stereotypes and cliches, Marijuana had a motivating and invigorating effect on me. I'm not sure if this was because I waited until I was 21 to try it, but it gave me direction and ambition, kind of the opposite of the results that many people experience. During this time, my career flourished, my salary increased, my performance improved, my job titles became more prestigious, and I earned equity in a company. I'm not sure if it's correlation or causation, but it seemed that marijuana worked for me until it didn't. Around my 37th birthday, after smoking four or five joints in one night and still not feeling high enough, I had a moment of clarity. The routine of smoking weed had gotten consuming. As with most things, after using for so long, I had to consume more and more to get the same effect. It just wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't helping like it used to. So I'm a huge nerd, and I wrote myself a note that read, The weed isn't helping you anymore. It's just become an expensive, ugly habit. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. The next day, I woke up and read the note. After smoking every day for almost 15 years, I finished reading the note and I decided I was quitting and I did so that day. It was a little challenging at first, mostly due to the habitual nature of it. I missed the process of preparing to smoke, and for some reason it affected my appetite. But these minor effects only lasted a few days. It was surprisingly easy for me to stop. 
So for 21 years, I had refrained from using drugs and alcohol. Then I radically switched and experimented with various substances for the next 15 years or so. Now fast forward to March of 2022. I'm grappling with Joe's death from alcohol and the fact that I drank at his funeral. As I mentioned before, my history with alcohol is complicated. Unable to shake the guilt and sadness over Joe's death, I decided to make a change in his honor. Inspired by the Seinfeld episode The Opposite and the commencement speech Just Make Your Bed, I started waking up early, making my bed, and flossing my teeth. It was time to make another change. On March 15, 2022, I stopped drinking. Much like weed, I just stopped. I recognize that it's not easy for everyone, but I had the advantage of making this decision voluntarily rather than due to a problem or addiction. Also, Joe was a motivator for me. He gave me a bigger reason to stop. Initially, I didn't plan to quit drinking for a year. I thought, I'll stop for a while. But as time went on, a little while turned into a week, then a month, and then eventually I decided to make it a year. Now, 13 months into my alcohol-free journey, I have never felt better. Of course, it's not all due to stopping drinking. I've made a lot of other positive changes since I quit. But by stopping drinking and weed, I unlocked a tremendous amount of time and resources that could now be redirected towards other uses. I no longer had to waste mornings to hangovers. No more wasting money buying rounds of shots for entire bars of strangers. And my socializing could be redirected from shallow conversations at noisy bars to a breakfast with a mentor that I hadn't reconnected with in years. It's not so much that alcohol was holding me back. I just wasted so much time and money when I was drinking. Something that became clear to me was that it wasn't alcohol that was bad. In many ways, it was awesome. But I kept wondering, what was alcohol and weed helpful for? I think I discovered an answer for me. Alcohol and weed make boring things enjoyable. I used to think that was amazing. You could make a boring dinner super enjoyable with alcohol. You could make sitting around a table for three hours talking about nothing seem incredibly fun, even if we didn't remember it the next day. I used to think this was an amazing aspect of alcohol, but now I realize it was limiting me. Why was I content with doing boring things so much? Why not raise my expectations? Instead of just sitting around talking about nothing, why not play pickleball or go for a run? Learn to shoot a bow and arrow or go to church and talk to an amazing pastor like Marvin or Jack. Alcohol can make boring things super fun and that's awesome. But now I shoot my sights a little higher. I want to make fewer of my moments boring. Let me be clear, I had a blast for 21 years while I was drinking. I don't regret them at all. Luckily, I don't regret drinking or using any of the drugs. They were all experiences that I needed to go through and they taught me a lot. I made a lot of great connections and I still love being around my friends when they are drinking. I don't look down on alcohol at all. But I think I'm in a new period of my life right now. It's possible that I may go back and drink alcohol again in the future. I haven't ruled it out. But for right now, I'm thinking that I run my life in seasons. 21 years at a time. 
Rest in peace, Joe.